Hey, welcome to the Celebration Church Podcast. We hope this helps you to know God better and to trust Him more. To keep up with us or to get more information, visit celebrationchurchlive.com. Um, well, on Resurrection Sunday, we kicked off a fresh series and um, that we're still in and be in for another few weeks um, called Jesus Said What? Um, because if you take an honest read of the scriptures, there's going to be some things that Jesus said that just kind of bother you, that just kind of rub you the wrong way. And you're like, man, um, I, I, that doesn't seem as Jesus-y as some of the things we love, like I'll never leave you or forsake you. Praise God for that. It's because he will never leave us or forsake us that we can get into some of these more challenging things. But the truth is, is every point where we're challenged, it's our flesh. It's our normal way of doing life that gets challenged. That's what we have pushed back against over and over again. And so as we get into this teaching this morning, uh, go ahead, get your Bible app, your bulletin, whatever it is you're going to use um, to be able to track along. Um, And we have led off with this idea that some of the things that Jesus said were totally shocking because they were looking at the things totally wrong. And the truth is, is our perspective will determine on whether or not we're really able to connect with some of the challenging things Jesus said. And again, I'm gonna say it every week. The reason as a pastor we're in this series Yes, it's to look at the scriptures and to better understand some of, the, some of the core teachings of Jesus. That is absolutely part of this. But the reason we're in, in this series, we do that every week. The reason we're in this series, this idea of Jesus saying things that's challenging to us, is because I know that in my life and the life of people I'm close to, it's the challenging things that Jesus said that's going to, and embracing those, that's what's going to determine if we're able to really grow or not. Um, that, that's the, those, are, those are the growth points. And in your walk with God, the Holy Spirit is going to say some challenging things. Going to challenge the way you look at yourself. Going to challenge the way you look at life. Going to challenge the way you look at others. And that is where real life change happens. And so we're in this series just to prep our minds to kind of prime the pumps of our heart with the idea that sometimes, sometimes when the Holy Spirit speaks to us, it's going to be something that is challenging for us. And sometimes we'll have some initial pushback, just like the people in the Bible have pushed back against what Jesus said. And every time it's simply because We're going on some wrong information. We're looking at things from the wrong perspective. And then we make a decision we think is a pretty good decision. And then we realize later with new information, that wasn't a good decision. That was not a good decision. Now, I'm one of these that I I like my coffee um, at least four times a day. And so, bare minimum, I'll drink at least four cups of coffee a day. And yes, I can drink it at 11 o'clock at night and it not bother me at all. And I don't know if that's a bad thing or a good thing, but um, I like coffee. Um, and I like coffee in all the flavors. If I just, normally if I, when I'm having coffee here, it's just black. And so that's just the way I, I drink my coffee. But I also like coffee in other ways. There ain't nothing wrong with a latte burrito. There's nothing wrong with a latte, gentlemen. 
it's okay to have a latte. And so, and, and it's still got some coffee in there. And so what I look at it as is a liquid dessert. And so, so if some in particular person gives me a hard time about ordering, I said, would you eat a piece of cake? And that person always says yes. And I'm like, well, then this is my liquid cake. And so, uh, but my favorite go-to non-black coffee drink, and I will leave the, uh, the, per- the, 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 the place out of it, but you'll know it by its name, is a skinny caramel macchiato. Do not beat me up after the service. <laughs> and so, but I just like a skinny caramel macchiato. And, but there's this idea in my mind because it says the word skinny in it that I am like being a little healthier because I don't like to drink my calories. I drink, I was born and raised in West Texas and I drink unsweet tea. I know that's just not Southern and I'm sorry. And so, but I just drink unsweet tea. I drink a lot of water and black coffee. I don't want to drink my calories. I want to eat my calories. There's enough stuff I like that's packed with calories. I don't need it in that. But I'll get my skinny caramel macchiato and feel like I'm doing good because it has the word skinny in it. Until you look up how many calories are in a venti skinny caramel macchiato. And it is 160 calories. Folks, a 12-ounce can of Coke, just good old Coke, has 150 calories. A can of Coke is skinnier than a skinny caramel macchiato. They need to, they need to market regular Coke and say skinnier than a skinnier, skinny caramel macchiato. The problem is, is that that skinny caramel macchiato is not skinny. It's skinnier. It is skinnier than the original. It is, has less calories than the original, but it's by no means a low-calorie beverage option. But I feel good about the decision because I said I want a skinny caramel macchiato. It made my friend go, I can't believe you're ordering that drink. And I'm sipping it thinking, I am doing good because I will live in Brand's world and this has zero calories. <laughs> and I just, in that, it's that place that I made a decision based on warped, manipulated information. And when it's all said and done, I didn't get the results that I really wanted. I ended up making a decision that if I knew exactly what I was getting into, I would never make that decision. But because I was able to put some words to it that made me feel comfortable, well, then I went with it. And the thing is, is so many times with Jesus' teaching, we run into the opposite. He gives us words that makes us feel uncomfortable. And so we don't go with it. And we need to prime our hearts to be ready to go with the words that make us uncomfortable, that Jesus is challenging us to move forward. And our baseline for the series is found in John 3.17. And John 3.17, and of course it's after John 3.16, but we have to understand why Jesus comes. And our baseline is this, that for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So again, so every time the Holy Spirit brings about this truth into our lives that makes us uncomfortable, he didn't do it to condemn you. 
He didn't do it to condemn you. You have to have that in there or you will shy away from it. You will pull away from it. Why? Because the enemy comes in and immediately brings guilt and shame to attach to that so that you will pull away when it's something you need to lean into. And so we have to remember, God is not trying to bring condemnation. He's not trying to bring guilt and shame into our lives. What's he trying to do? He's trying to save the world. He's trying to save you. When he speaks these challenging things, it's to better your life. It's to make things turn out better for you. And we just look at something that Jesus says that begins to challenge us, especially as Americans and certainly as Texans. We have a little bit of a hard time with this right here that Matthew chapter 20, verse 25 says, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. The high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. And he's talking to his disciples, not just the general populace. He's talking to his disciples. He says that you're not going to run that way. You're not going to operate that way. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great, if you want to be put into the label, into the stratosphere of greatness, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. You're going to have to be a servant. That's not a word we lean into in a strong way. That I'm just going to be a servant. It's a sweet little word we use in these church circles. But we step out of this place. Oh, I'm just here to serve. Oh, I'm just here to serve. We step out of here into the real world. You don't hear that. Nope. Doesn't happen. Why? Because it goes against us. But here we see that if you really want to step up, Jesus keeps going. You're going to have to be baseline of a servant. And whoever wants to be first, he's like, okay, there is this stratosphere. There's this group of, of greats, okay? And anytime you talk about the, the goats of anything, okay? You talk about the greatest of all time and of, of NFL quarterbacks or NBA players. You list the greats, okay? You want to be in the conversation, then you got to fall within the great. Jesus is saying you want to be in the conversation, of, of great, you're going to have to be a servant. But if you want to end up in, from heaven's perspective of being the number one, if you want to become the, if you want to be the one who's going to be first, you've actually got to take this idea of servant and you have to take it to an uncomfortable place. And he uses the word slave. A servant can still feel like they're making a decision. A slave says, this is simply what I'm going to do. I'm just here and I'm, I'm, I am, don't have a choice. I'm just going to do this. And all of a sudden, a servant can be looked at as even a paid servant. That there's some sort of give and exchange. And this word slave is so charged and Jesus tells his, his disciples that if you're good, you can be great, but you're going to have to serve. But if there's a place in you that you want to go to the next level, you actually have to be willing to be a slave. 
to be a slave. And that just grinds against us. And I guarantee you, it was totally against these Jewish disciples that Jesus said, because they were, their ancestors were slaves once. They were slaves in Egypt. And their greatest celebration, Passover, in fact, the one that pointed to Jesus and, and, it, and that the Jewish nation still celebrates right while we're celebrating the resurrection of, of their Messiah, they're still celebrating something that had happened way back even prior to that that pointed to their Messiah. They're celebrating Passover. And they're like, our greatest celebration is the fact that we're not slaves anymore. And you're saying, if I'm going to follow you, then I have to be willing to be a slave Again? This is challenging. This is tough. We don't like it to be worded that way. This is a word that makes us want to fight. This is a word that makes us want to push back. But see, as we move forward in the scriptures, Paul uses this concept. And our new our English changes it and calls it a bond servant. But really, if you translate it better, it's bond slave. And it's a slave by choice. And Paul says, I'm a slave by choice to Jesus. I'm not just here trying to serve him. I've given myself fully to him. I am fully owned by Jesus. I am owned by him. I was bought with a price. My life is not my own. The life I now live is in Christ. And there's a place where I'm so thankful that God loves us enough to, to meet us right where we are and to allow us to begin to add him into our lives. But full discipleship says, no, I'm owned by him. I fully belong to Jesus. And Jesus is telling his disciples, you want to go all the way. You have to embrace this idea. You have to embrace this concept. Verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, what Jesus is teaching Jesus' teaching is that God's kingdom works upside down. What it feels like to us is the right way for things to go. He says, nope, it's actually, it works upside down. In fact, as we look at the life and, and ministry of Paul, that began to be his reputation. That when Paul came in and people began to embrace the gospel, that life actually went upside down. But the truth is, what was happening is it's reversing the effects of sin. When you are upside down and you live your life upside down, right side up, looks upside down. When you've lived your whole life upside down, right side up looks upside down. And that was what these people were seeing. Let's look at Acts chapter 17, verse 3. Explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, 
took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, shouting, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jesus came to say, we're all, all of humanity has been looking at the world the wrong way, looking at life the wrong way. You think greatness is found in achievement and getting people to do things for you? No, greatness is found in you understanding that the greatest person in the world made you, God made you and made you to make other people's lives better by you taking the image of him that's on the life on the inside of you and serving others that it's actually turned right side up when we begin to live upside down. Mark chapter 10, Mark covers this same concept that Matthew does and says, not so with you, but instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And I go, okay. What does this look like? How does this function in our lives? This is a challenging concept, but how does this really look? And Jesus had already begun to teach this when he did teach the multitude in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, the first time we looked at one of the challenging things Jesus said that he said you had heard it was said, people had added to what had been said. Love your enemy. I mean, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. He said, you've heard it said. That's because it had become this colloquial thing. Here he is saying, you have heard it said. Not because someone has, has taken the scriptures out of context. No, you can find um, this eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth three different times in the scriptures. You can find it in Exodus and Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. It's repeated multiple times. Here's the thing is this has become such a common saying that people connected it more with a truth for how to live than what God had to say. And so many times we begin to even take something God had to say and we just use it as a common way, that just a common thing. We've taken the power and authority out of it. It's still true, but we're not doing it based on what God had to say. And, and he takes something that God said that has become just a common everyday understanding. You've heard it said, not it is written. He uses it as written multiple times. He said, but you just repeat it over and over again. You really like this one. You've really imprinted on this one. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now we have to understand some concepts here, okay? This eye for an eye established early on, it was repeated three times to be able to understand um, that first of all, there is a place uh, for justice, okay? Justice is a thing that God is understanding and you and I need to be engaged in justice taking place. And this was one of the established rules for justice. It was also about fairness, okay? It's not you, you accidentally 
poke somebody's eye out, okay, um, and, and now we're actually go, we're going to kill you over this. It's like, no, there's consequences to your actions, but we're going to do this in a fair and equitable way. In fact, our modern understanding of a proportional response, okay, that we need to make sure that our response is equal to this. And so, and it's, we've put it into fancy language of proportional response, but even historians back up our modern idea of proportional response back to the Old Testament, and into this space. Because before this got codified, if somebody wounded you, what is our normal human nature? Somebody makes you lose an eye? What does your natural carnal response want to do? Want to kill them. You made me lose my eye. I'm just going to take you out. You knocked my tooth out? Oh, yeah. You should have swung harder because now I'm about to come back way more. No, the scriptures say, no, and establishing this idea of fairness. And Jesus said, we, for us to be able to operate in a place of humility, we have to first understand this concept of fairness. In fact, Micah 6, 8, which you'll see on your screen, um, God says this. He says, he's shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to act justly. And to love mercy and to walk humbly. This is a progression. You don't, you can't live in a place of mercy if you don't understand that justice is actually fair. You can only give mercy if you understand that I could give justice, but I've chosen to give mercy. And then you can only walk humbly. If you've lived out mercy first, they are progressive and we have to understand them. So first and foremost, there's this thing that to be able to turn the other cheek, we have to first understood that there's a place in us. God doesn't want us simply taking a beating. He's not set us up to just take a beating. He has set us up to begin to respond and to act like him. But if we don't understand the early principles first, then this other thing just feels like us setting ourselves up for being victimized, okay? Some person who's living in, a, in an abusive home, the scripture turn the other cheek is not your scripture. This place of justice is where you begin. You don't sit there and just let somebody in your home beat on you and stand on the scripture of I'm turning the other cheek. No, you're being victimized. God cares about justice. That stuff needs to happen. You can begin to move into mercy once you've established justice. Amen. But until then, all you're doing is refusing to set healthy boundaries for you and them because the abuser doesn't need to be an abuser and they're not going to stop it until they're challenged on it. And so we have to do that. We have to establish justice. Then we can walk in mercy. Then we can walk in humility. Learned this real early in parenthood when our oldest, uh, uh, Pastor Keenan, who's up here helping lead worship today, um, was in the church nursery way back in the day. It's obviously been a little minute since he was two years old and in the nursery. And so, but he was in the nursery and there was another kid his age in the nursery. Pastor John Holler was my pastor and mentor and was in charge, of course, of everything. He was a senior pastor. And so Keenan kept getting bit in the nursery. 
And we're like, this is not, this is not cool. And so the person in charge of the nursery just told us, uh, well, maybe you need to keep Keenan out of the nursery. Hmm. No, there's a kid biting my kid. This space is supposed to be for him. No, we need to deal with the biter. We need to deal with that. And so I talked to Pastor John about it. I was like, Pastor John, what do I need to do? And he pulled out Micah 6.8. And he began to show it to me. He's like, he's like your son needs to understand. Because he can't live out mercy and humility if he doesn't understand that it's not okay for someone to randomly bite him. The scripture isn't telling a two-year-old to sit there and get bit on one arm and go, oh, this one's, this one's free. But this one... No, he's not asking him to victimize himself. The only way Kenan was ever going to be able to understand and walk in a place of humility is if he understood that that was unjust that he was getting bit. And so we began to go back and forth. And my, my pastor, who's in charge of it all, he said, you tell Kenan that if that kid bites him again, to punch him in the face. <laughs> I said, yes, pastor. He said he can't talk. It's been over and over and over again. It just went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. He's like, he doesn't need to put up with that because he's too young to understand these progressive principles and he cannot build a victim mentality into a child. They cannot operate in mercy if they think justice isn't an option. If a justice is an option I can, and I can't enforce justice and now I'm choosing to walk in mercy, that is a higher level choice. But if all I'm ever going to be as a victim, we build victim mentality into people. If we cannot say and stand for justice, we can never really be walk in a place of mercy and humility. And so we told the nursery director, okay, just so you know, um, Keenan's been told by us, as we've talked, our senior pastor, this kid bites Keenan again. Keenan's been instructed to punch him in the face, like in his mouth. Like, you bite me with your mouth, I'm going to punch the mouth. And so, and man, she got upset. I'm like, well, you can talk to your pastor about it. And so, but this is, this is what we're doing. And so, sure enough, Sure enough, um, all of a sudden, um, kid bites Keenan, and uh, Keenan operated in mercy. And he grabbed the kid and shoved him up against the wall. And in his little two and a half year old self, he just pinned him there until he cried. And then he let go of the kid, and he didn't get bit again. <laughs> but he didn't punch him in the face. <laughs> but he knew that justice was good and could be pursued and is the baseline, okay? Folks, you and I, we're about to get into stuff that's really challenging and it's turning the other cheek, but you will never touch, turn, genuinely turn the other cheek if you're always a victim. You'll never do it. You'll never do it. And I'm here today, to somebody is going to feel comfortable about not crossing, about not putting a healthy boundary in because you're going to say, oh, I'm just turning the other cheek. No, you need to listen to the Holy Spirit to draw that healthy boundary. And once you've established justice, then you can 
Step into mercy and humility. Then you can step into those other things. Boundaries are healthy and good. Jesus is not setting us up to be victimized over and over and over again, but to make a life-giving, loving choice to operate on God's, on the way God functions. Let's go ahead and look at verse 40. It says, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat too. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow you, borrow from you. All of a sudden now, you can begin to live your life in a bigger way. This thing of going the extra mile, we hit on it a couple of weeks ago, this drove them crazy. Why? Because the Roman soldiers had the authority to force any of these Jewish people to carry their load for one mile. They couldn't make them carry their stuff all day, couldn't make them work for them all day, but they could force them legally to carry it one mile. And Jesus says, if somebody does that to you, which who's going to do that to you? The one you see as an enemy is going to do that to you. Someone asks you to do it, then I want you to go a second mile. Why? Because the first mile was... You didn't have a choice. It was the law of the land. You're going, to get thrown, you're going to get thrown in jail or you're going to get beaten in the street. You're going to get punished. But that second mile wasn't serving that Roman law. That second mile was serving the law of love. And in demonstrating that, that person that was forcing you, you they were demonstrating, I operate on a higher law. I don't operate on Roman law. I operate on the law of love. And what really began to happen in the first couple of centuries under Roman rule is the early church did it. They lived it out. And you know what happened on those miles? All of a sudden, when it hit the second mile and the guy was ready to take his pack back and was like, no, I'm gonna, I'll carry it another mile. Like, why? Why are you going to do this? And it became an opportunity, that second mile became an opportunity to share Jesus begin an opportunity to share why they lived differently, why they responded differently. And the gospel went forth, even though the Roman authorities for centuries tried to squelch Christianity. They hated Christianity in the first couple of centuries. Christianity just went everywhere. People were giving their lives to Jesus over and over again. And it wasn't because there were big open-air meetings. It wasn't because there was all of these evangelistic stuff or anything or all these wonderful pamphlets being passed out. You know what it was? It was genuine people whose lives were changed who were willing to love their enemies and serve their enemies and carry it a second mile. And the gospel went around and took over to the point that Constantine finally said, okay, fine. The official rule of Rome is that Christianity is the official religion. And all of a sudden, it was because of one extra mile here and one extra mile there and another extra mile there. All of a sudden, there began to be people sharing the gospel, living it out in real time, and it took over the Roman Empire because people were willing to live the truth that, yes, justice is right and fair, but there's a higher call of mercy and humility 
and I can begin to do something out of a choice. Even while you've compelled me, you've forced me to carry it one mile. I've chosen to carry it too. It changes the dynamic of everything. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 7 says, reminds us as, as believers, serve wholeheartedly as if, you, as if you were serving the Lord, not people. 1 Peter 4.10 says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Matthew 19.30, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. And this runs against our nature, our carnal nature so much that we will actually begin to get deviously creative even with our spiritual walk in finding reasons why we don't have to serve one another. See, if we're not careful, it's possible to use devotion to God to reduce our service to others. And Jesus challenged it. Jesus challenged it here in Mark chapter 7, verse 9. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might have otherwise have received from me, is korban. That means is gift to God. Then you no longer let him let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. Here was the thing is there was no social security system. There was no, there was no big retirement system. The way that things had worked forever is that parents, aged parents were taken care of by their grown children. That was the way it would just function for centuries and centuries and millennia and millennia. And so, but there were those who were selfish and did not want to take care of their parents. Maybe they didn't have a good relationship with them. Maybe they didn't like them. Maybe they fell out with them. And they created this thing that said that if I decree that this amount of money, this food, this whatever, that I would be, I would help you with, mom and dad, aged parents who can't work anymore, then I'm saying, ah, sorry, it's korban. It's devoted to God. And now their law said they could not you look it up, you read it for yourself. If, they, if, a, if a kid declared something was Corban, they could do anything with it but give it to their parents. They could spend it on themselves. They could give it away to somebody else. They could do whatever. They didn't actually have to take it to the temple and give it to God. They just could not give it to their parents. So all of a sudden, here this place of caring for and honoring your parents, which is part of the Ten Commandments. They said, you actually nullify that because you want an escape clause that you don't have to do good to your own family. You don't have to care for your own family. See, Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not unjust and he will not forget your work and the love that you have shown him. The love that we have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We're showing love 
to God, to him, as we help his people. See, our kindness isn't just to make God like us. We're not going the second mile because if I go the second mile, then that helps me get into heaven. No, I'm getting into heaven because of what Jesus did. Because Jesus covered all the miles. Because Jesus handled it all. So why in the world do we go the second mile? Because of love. Because of love. Not because we're trying to get anything out of God. Not because we're trying to get anything out of somebody else. Simply for love's sake. That is the beautiful thing. Only in Christianity. That God has made us right out of something he did. So it makes it where none of the good things we do are to get good rewards for us. It's simply for throwing love to others and to God. It has nothing with us, with us trying to be selfish and get rewards for ourselves. We already have the greatest reward. We have the relationship with God and peace that heaven is our home. Our kindness we show is simply for kindness sake. Galatians chapter 5 verse 13 says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Our bottom line this morning is God's love, God's love for us frees us to truly love others. To truly, truly love others. It's only in his love can real love actually function. Why? Because it pulls all of the love and reward system out of it. And it's just love. It's just love. So I want to create a quiet moment here and now. I want to create a space that someone's ready to place their faith in that. And a a God who loves them so much that he's not inviting you into a way to work off all your bad deeds. He's not inviting you for a place to just have a start over and to do perfect from here on out. He's inviting you into a place where he has paid for all of your sin, past, present, and future. And all you have to do is believe him. Believe that he did it and embrace the forgiveness he is freely giving. Thank you for listening to this message from Celebration Church. You can keep up with all that God is doing here at Celebration by following us on Facebook and Instagram.